If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since you're listening to this podcast, we have a very special offer for you. You can try six issues of BBC History Revealed magazine for just $9.99. That's a saving of 70% on the shop price. BBC History Revealed is the all-action history magazine suitable for the whole family. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. And if you're based in the US, you won't miss out. You can try three issues for just $9.95, saving a huge 70%. For more details, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. Both these offers end on the 15th of May, 2021. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. As their families were murdered and their communities destroyed, a group of young Jewish women in Nazi-occupied Poland decided to fight back against their German oppressors. Their stories are told in The Light of Days, a new book by the author, journalist and historian Judy Battalion who spent years researching the lives of the women of the Jewish resistance. In conversation with BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar, Judy opens a window onto this little-known chapter of the Holocaust. Your book focuses on Jewish women who resisted the Nazis, predominantly in occupied Poland. Why do you think that their story may not be as well-known as their male counterparts? So first of all, I think even their male counterpart stories are not that well known. There are a few men's names from the uh, Polish Jewish resistance that sort of did make it into sort of broader history discussions, but not many. And even those that did, 
they're still quite obscure. So there's kind of a double layer of silencing that's going on. One is about Jewish resistance in general, and the second one is about women, women's experience in the war, Jewish women's experience in the Holocaust, and in particular, and what I'm addressing, Jewish women who were part of the resistance. Um, why, you're asking, um, do we not know these names? And this, for me, was such an important question. It became almost the subtext or sub-question of my entire inquiry. On the one hand, I was researching what happened, what is the story, but I was also at the same time researching what happened to the story. How could I possibly not know a story that encompasses first great numbers of people and acts that are, are so dramatic and compelling? And I think um, I've come up with, with a number of different reasons as I articulate towards the end of the book. Some of them have to do with the zeitgeist, the kind of social and intellectual zeitgeist, um, and how that shifted over the decades and what interests us in the Holocaust. Some of this has to do with political, um, political reasons and the ways that the narratives of the Holocaust have been used to, to kind of shape other causes. Um, and then, and, and what I feel I can speak to mostly in particular with women is there's a lot of personal silencing of these stories. Many of these women who, who, those who survived felt, um, they, they did, many of them try to share their stories at the beginning after the war and they were not believed. They were often accused of, um, fleeing their families to fight They were accused even of sleeping their way to safety. Many of these women felt incredible survivor's guilt. Um, In particular, the the women I write about were resistance fighters. And one of them, one of them, I'm thinking of Hasia Bielika. She writes about how when she felt finally ready to talk about her experiences in the war and, you know, her family was brutally murdered. She was Um, a courier in Bialystok bringing weapons into the ghetto, into the forest. She was part of, they started a league of um, anti-fascists, including anti-Nazi Germans, and connected them with the Red Army. I mean, she she did incredible resistance work in the war. Um, But she felt that compared to her fellow survivors who had been through Auschwitz, who had been through these death camps or slave labor camps, she'd had it easy. And because of that, she she felt guilty sharing her story. Um, so part of the silencing had to do with that. Um, obviously, the women I write about, they're women. And many of them, their families were all killed. And they felt almost a cosmic duty to repopulate the Jewish people. They had, they had families. And they wanted to raise children who were happy in a, in a context that felt normal, that felt um, joyous. And also because of that, they silenced their stories. And and for many of them, like many refugees, it, they too wanted to start afresh in their new countries. And it was important for many of them to really move on and, and not talk about these past traumas. The stories that you tell are predominantly situated in occupied Poland. What was the situation of the Jewish community there? Well, many of these women began operating um, 
individually or as part of, out of their, they were all part of youth movements. That's who I'm writing about. And this happened weeks after war began. Um, This was really immediately um, after Hitler invaded Poland. Um, So when I start writing, um, there's a military attack. Poland is being invaded. There is confusion and scarcity and lack of leadership and a lot of fear. Um, Soon after, Jews are forcibly ghettoized into um, often impoverished areas of cities and even small towns. And they are uh, basically imprisoned in these small areas, extremely crowded areas. Um, And after that, uh, Jews are largely, they call them liquidated. These ghettos were liquidated. That was kind of the euphemism. Jews were taken from these ghettos to be killed in death camps. That is kind of the general trajectory of Jews in Poland. And so, considering the already tremendous perils that were facing these women just by being Jewish in Poland, what do you think drove them to take on additional risks by actively resisting the Nazis? You know, I'm thinking of women, as I was saying before, their resistance work began as soon as Poland was attacked. And I'm thinking of one woman, for instance, Frumka Plotnitska. She was 25 years old. She was a leader in the um, youth movement organization, which was very, very significant in Poland. Um, And she fled east. She made her way to um, what was then Belarusian territory near her parents. And weeks into it, she couldn't take having fled. And she smuggled herself back into Nazi-occupied Poland and ended up becoming a leader in the Warsaw Ghetto and around the country. Um, Why she did this? I mean, I write about many women and obviously the question of what motivated this audacious behavior uh, I mean, that is that is the, the key question for me and, and where this all began. Um, I think for someone like Frumka, she simply felt responsible for her people and truly uh, felt like she needed to lead them and she needed to be there in a crisis. Um, for, for many women, they were already leaders in the young Jewish community and they too felt very responsible for their fellow Jews, and uh, and and you know, really they were they were very driven by principle. They believed in justice and in truth and in fairness, and that drove their their fight. Um, Others found themselves in circumstances where they they were asked to join the resistance. They were asked to um, join missions, in particular women, because they were able to pose more easily than men as Christian or, or Catholic Poles. And women who looked good, good meaning lighter skin, lighter hair, um, looked more non-Jewish, um, were, were, um, asked to, um, to join the resistance. And, and many of them who I, I write about were very eager to, um, they were filled with fury. Their families had been killed. Um, they were filled with a a desire for both revenge and, and a fight for freedom. 
When you say that the uh, the Jewish women found it easier to masquerade as Christian poles than the men, why was that? I mean, in the book you talk about the fact that obviously they wouldn't be circumcised and that's something that would always distinguish a Jewish man. Was that the only reason or were there other things that enabled women to conceal themselves more? Yeah, there were there were other things. Um, so first of all, in, in the 1930s in Poland, uh, education was mandatory for boys and girls. Um, but often Jewish families sent their sons to private Jewish schools and daughters were sent to Polish public school. And in these public schools, these girls who ended up becoming the operatives in the resistance that I write about, um, they they were surrounded by Christian friends. They were more acculturated. They were aware of Christian uh, traditions and habits and even gesticulations. Um, and most important, they, and, and they write about this constantly in their memoirs, they were taught to speak Polish like a Pole um, and not with, as they often say, the creaky Yiddish accent. And, and so they spoke a passable Polish, um, which many men did not. And that really obviously helped them go undercover. Now, I, I realise this does encompass a very broad number of things, but what were the main activities of the, the women who took part in the Jewish resistance? So in the organised resistance that I, I write about, women had many different roles, ranging from you know, the more social action roles, setting up soup kitchens, providing medical care, clothing, taking care of Jewish children, many of whom were orphaned, their parents were killed. Um, then there were those who wrote underground bulletins, who edited underground newspapers and distributed them. Um, then there were those who were blowing up German supply trains um, involved in sabotage missions. There were those who were assassins and shot Gestapo men in the head. Um, and then a bulk of the women that I write about in my book were what was called courier girls. Um, and they were basically, again, because they were able to disguise themselves, um, as Christian girls, these girls, and I say girls because they were very young. They were often teenagers, maybe up to age 23, 24. Um, these young women um, were able to slip in and out of the ghettos. And they connected these, these locked, really imprisoned ghettos. Um, they connected these Jewish communities. At first, they brought information. J Jewish ghettos, Jews, they were not allowed to have radios or newspapers. So it was these courier girls who were really bringing them information about what was going on in the war, what the Germans were even doing to Jewish people. Um, the Jews did not know. Um, and then as the war progressed, they started bringing underground bulletins, um, and then they began smuggling weapons to help arm uh, resistance units, um, guns, explosives, ammunition. Um, they also smuggled people and they helped take Jews out of ghettos, out of slave labor camps and bring them either to hiding spots or to the forest. So it's fair to say that their resistance was more than just symbolic. They actually caused material harm to the German occupiers and saved the lives of some of their fellow Jews. Yes. One courier, Zelda Traeger, did 17 trips between 
um, the forests in, outside Vilna and and camps and towns, bringing Jews out to the forest with her. Um, I also, yes, many of these women also fought in ghetto uprisings. They flung Molotov cocktails and they threw explosives at Nazi tanks. Now, I presume the the best known for our listeners of the ghetto uprisings would be the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. What was the role of the women resistors there? So the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising is something my, myself personally, uh, you know, I as a, I come from a family of Holocaust survivors. I grew up in a community of Holocaust survivors, and I always knew of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, but I didn't really know what happened. And the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was a, a very organized effort um, based out of youth, these youth movements, um, organized a, a mili- an underground military operation. Um, and 750 youths were um, involved, and about 250 were women. And uh, so these women contributed as combat, as guerrilla fighters in the uprising. Um, there's one story of a woman, uh, Masha Futermilk, and she, I, I, I remember this from her testimonies and from her, her tellings. She, you know, climbed up to a roof. Their strategy was to attack from the rooftops. And she, um, you know, her fingers were, were shaking, but she lit this match, which lit the explosive, and she started flinging it um, from the rooftop. And she hears... Um, Nazis cry out in shock, ein Frau Kampf, der Frau Kampf, um, a woman is fighting. Um, women were also leaders in the Warsaw Ghetto underground. Zivia Lebetkin um, was one of the main leaders of the underground and of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But now, I mean, to me right now, the the Holocaust is a story of constant resilience, constant resistance, constant defiance. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And what kind of relations did these, the women resistors, but but also the men as well, what kind of relations did they have with the other Jewish people within the ghettos and then within the camps as well? Because it wasn't always a harmonious one, was it? They didn't always agree on the right strategies. Um, many times they did not agree at all. Um, even among the youth movements, they would fight with each other. And and some of the reason that it, it took a while to, to create a larger body of resistance fighters in a place like Warsaw was because there was so, so much inner debate and discussion around what to do and how to handle Nazi occupation. Um, and people had, of course, different opinions on this. Um, in fact, it, you know, to be very 
generalizing. Um, there's kind of this idea that the adult leaders of the Jewish community um, in Warsaw were, were nervous about fighting back um, because they thought that would just make the Nazis retaliate even more. Um, whereas the youth felt they're crazy. The Nazis are going to kill us all. We must fight back. And so there was discord within the community, too, about how to to handle this horror, I mean, really horrific situation. And speaking of the horror of it, I mean, if you read your book, some of the things you describe are almost beyond belief in terms of the barbarity that, that the Germans showed on, on their Jewish victims. How did these women continue to function, continue to fight when they saw some of these atrocities taking place against their people? Uh, I think the atrocities, I think that fueled them. I mean, this was, I mean, I mean, horrible things to witness. These were moments that fueled their their need to fight back, their desire to to overthrow or to, you know, to even have any kind of um, fight at a combat that the, the Nazis, even though they knew that they, they could never win against this enormous army, but what else could they do? They had to fight back. Um, and you talked earlier about some of the advantages the women had in terms of being in the resistance, but what additional challenges did they face by the fact that they were women taking part in this resistance? Everyone who was part of the, I mean, any resist, I mean, any Jew was, was at risk of death at any moment. So additional additional challenges. I mean, of course, there were women. There was uh, sexual assaults, horrible sexual violence. Um, and there were uh, blackmailers. They were often, from my readings, they were not Germans. They were Polish um, Catholics who knew who was a disguised Jew and who wasn't. They had a better eye for it than the Germans who were foreign. Um, and they were called schmaltzovniks blackmailers, uh, greasers. Schmaltz is the word for grease. And the Schmaltzovniks would blackmail um, people who they thought or they sniffed out as being Jewish and say, if you don't pay me, um, I'll, I'm going to bring you in to the Gestapo. I'm going to report you. And many of these women would walk around with stashes of money, like right at, you know, like stuck into their shirt so they could just pay off the Schmaltzovniks as they as they did their missions um, outside the ghettos, but these Shmalsovniks often also they demanded sex from these women too. Um, so that you know these are some of the additional things that as women they had to confront. And were they viewed differently by their fellow resistors due to the fact that they were women? I don't think so. I mean, women took on slightly different roles in the resistance because they were able to do slightly different work than the men were. Um, uh, you know, I, I was looking primarily through the women's lenses in my storytelling. So, you know, I read a number of male testimonies too, um, but they, it's not something that really came up. I think these were extremely brutal. I mean, stressful doesn't even begin to describe the, the, the experience. These people are at risking death every second of their day. So, I, I mean, I really think they did what they could. They worked together. And in your previous answer, you alluded to a subject I wanted to bring up, which was the, and it's a controversial one today, to, to this day, the possible complicity of Polish people in the Holocaust. I mean, there's obviously lots of examples of Polish people helping 
Jewish resistors, but also there were examples of Polish people acting on the side of the Germans. What kind of insights do you get into that topic from the women you write about? I mean, just that there were both. Um, because I'm writing about and from personal narratives, there are many stories of Polish people who helped the Jews, and there are many stories of Polish people who did not help the Jews or who threatened them or who hurt them. Um, you know, my my central character, and I don't know if I should give it away, but she does end up being caught. And she is imprisoned in a Gestapo political prison Um, But the Nazis don't know that she's Jewish. Her disguise works. And they think she is a Polish resistance fighter. They think she's a spy for the Polish resistance. And she is brutally tortured. Uh, I mean, horrifically tortured in in these prisons, uh, not as a Jew, but as as a Catholic Pole. So the story is fraught and, and complicated. And your book also takes story into Auschwitz as well, uh, for some of the characters. How was it possible for them to continue resisting, even in those circumstances? I mean, there's an incredible story that I, I tell, almost as an aside in the book, of a group of almost 30 women who collaborate to um, steal gunpowder. They're in Birkenau, and they are um, in slave labor, working in a... Nazi weapons factory. And there's a few different uh, underground groups at Auschwitz. Also, they didn't all get along. Um, And there's a decision in part in among several groups and even um, in collaboration with the Polish resistance on the outside of the camp to blow up a crematorium. And it becomes these Jewish women's role to steal gunpowder from the factory in which they are forced to work um, to help blow up the crematorium. And you know, from descriptions and stories that I've read, I, I've gathered that the women, those who worked in the powder room, um, they stole little tiny, tiny bits of powder. They would put it in a waste container. Another Jewish girl would come collect the waste and then she would take this bit of powder and go to the bathroom and wrap it in a bit of fabric. These are like less than teaspoons. They're tiny bits. And they would collect it, hide it in their in their body, um, in their bosoms, in, in whatever pockets they had. And they would give it to another round of a uh, Jewish woman who collected it. She then gave it to someone else. No one knew who else was involved um, because if, if the less you knew, the better in case you were caught and tortured, um, which happened all the time. Um and eventually they handed it to one woman named Roja Robota, and she smuggled it over to the men's camp. Um, some people write about it coming in, in fake bottoms of trays or soup bowls um, sewn into the hems of work aprons. And that was given to the men. And the men did blow up a crematorium. By the end of your book, quite a lot of the characters have actually survived Um seem, you know, incredibly, considering what they went through. Do you think that this was mainly due to their own personal qualities or or was this just luck? Are these just the few survivors when, you know, the hundreds of thousands of millions didn't make it? Well, first of all, you you have to look at how a historian works. So I am writing primarily from memoirs and testimonies. 
And most, not all, there were a few exceptions, but most of these were written after the war. So they were written by people that survived. Um, and so I, I, ha- I focused on those characters um, primarily because I had robust narratives Um, I had information about them and from them. So necessarily, I I focused on people who survived. There were some instances of, I mean, an amazing diary was written in in a a Gestapo prison in Krakow by Augusta Davidson. It was written on toilet paper and buried in the cell. And she she did not survive, but um, parts of this diary did survive. That was another source um, for my work. So some of the work did come from writings during the war, um, but obviously those were much, much more difficult to find and access. Um, so I naturally looked to people who survived because I had stories. Most people did not survive. Most people in the underground were killed. Um, yes, to some degree it was luck. And you're talking about surviving, but obviously surviving doesn't necessarily end in 1945. These women had undergone tremendous trauma. They'd often seen many of their family members killed. How did they go about rebuilding their lives after 1945? Yeah, this is another one of my kind of sub-questions sub for the whole project and, and something that really fascinated me. And the whole last part of the book is post-war. Um, how did they go on? How did they keep surviving? And... Obviously, I speak about different women, so different people had different techniques for coping and living and thriving. Um, as I mentioned earlier, for some people, that was moving on. That was really silencing the story. Many the, the figures that I write about, they were all, when the war ended, they were in their early 20s. They had their entire life ahead of them. They had no family, no home, no nationality and many traumatic memories. So they really had to, had to recreate themselves. And, and so for some, it really was a matter of putting the past behind them in whatever way they could and moving forward. Um, and others though didn't, they, they became very involved in uh, survivor communities and in Holocaust education and, and in telling their story. And, and as you point out, they were very young, these women, even at the end of the war. Am I right to say that actually some are even still alive today? Yeah, there are. I actually just got an Instagram message this morning from someone who I hadn't known about. And her her grandmother um, was fought in, in, in a ghetto uprising. And she just sent me all these pictures and stories of her. I'm finding this. People are still, now that this project has gone public, people are emailing me all the time with incredible stories. Um, most of these women were, were born around 1920. There are two I know for sure who I I mentioned in the book who are alive. There are about a hundred now. Um, in fact, many of the women that did survive lived very long lives. Many of them lived into their nineties. How do you think this story as a whole should shape our understanding of the events of the Holocaust? I think that there's been a misconception that I, I too subconsciously felt or, or participated in for many years that 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 of, of Jewish passivity, 
But now, I mean, to me right now, the, the Holocaust is a story of constant resilience, constant resistance, constant defiance. Um, just most people were, were still killed because they couldn't, you know, battle a, a, a massive army. Um, but but I, I think that's important. This is a, a tale of, of just constant resilience. That was Judy Battalion. The Light of Days is out now, published by Virago. And you can read more about the Holocaust on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow with the next episode in our series on Britain's Greatest Prime Ministers. 